Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is good to be with you guys. Um, our, uh, I think somebody was counting our kids this morning. They told me that I had seven, uh, I had six out of seven today. So that's an improvement from the last time I was here, I think. So we're slowly uh, getting more and more of us here. So uh, we are here from Monroe and it is a delight to be here with you. My wife, Carissa and I and our kids um, enjoy uh, fellowshipping amongst you. It's, it's a delight to come to Stanwood and to join you in worship. And I agree, Shane, it was, uh, just a lovely time to enter into the presence of God. Um, we value coming to uh, places like this. And, and uh, so thank you for allowing our, our family to join you this morning. And, and it, is, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I, I don't know if you noticed, um, I came up with a microphone and, and a Bible. And, and there was like a little tablet thing. And so if you, if you saw me with a microphone and a, and a Bible and a tablet and coming up towards a stage, what, like what would you say my profession would be? Preach, preacher, okay, sure. All right, um, we, we could go with that. Uh, um, all right, what if, what if I walked up on stage and uh, I was wearing scrubs and I had a stethoscope and um, a little, like a little bag. What would you say my profession was? Doctor? Anything else? Maybe veterinarian assistant? I don't know. Um, so what, what about, like, what if I came up, uh, what if I came up and I had a hard hat, a saw, a tape measure? Okay, construction maybe. What, what if I had the same microphone, a cowboy hat, and cowboy boots? And a guitar? Like I'm Garth Brooks, like, you know, like I'm a, some sort of musician, some entertainer, right? Uh, uh, what, if I, what if I came up here wearing like jeans, an ironic t-shirt, and a, and a computer? What? <laughs> IT, yes, thank you. Like a software engineer, maybe? I don't know. Um, oh, I forgot, and a pair of Vans, so that'd, that'd be part of it, so. And the energy drink. Okay, so then, then you got the, uh, then you have the software engineer for sure. So, and now I'm a youth pastor. Okay, thank you. Yes, yes. I've been a youth pastor, and the energy drink is a needed like part of the deal there for sure. That is that is an important piece of the puzzle. Thank you. You know, um, you know, we come together on Sunday mornings and we gather, um, you know, together as a church. And then Monday through Saturday, we we're like the church scattered. Right? And, and it sounds like some of you guys are gathering, you know, on Saturday morning. And men, I just encourage you, along with Shay, that yes, that's something that you should be doing. You should be gathering with other men, talking about the things that are important and uh, encouraging one another and challenging one another uh, to live out the things that God has called you to live. And women, the same thing, gather together with other women. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of times, Monday through Saturday, we are the church scattered. Um, I, I did a little math. I, I don't do a lot of math in my life, but I did a little math. math. So you might want to correct me after service if you'd like to. Um, but, you know, committed believers in this room that are ages 25 to 65, like not, not ages, but from the age of 25 to the age of 65, I think is 40 years. And so if you were a committed believer to this church for 40 years from the age of 25 all the way to 65, you would like sit in these chairs for somewhere around 3,000 hours. All right, which seems like a lot. 
So like Sunday morning, 40 years, 52 weeks a year, you're sitting in these chairs, you know, roughly an hour and a half service, and there you are. You know, it's kind of sore if you start thinking about it from that perspective. Um, it won't be that long. But, but 3,000 hours, it's a lot. However, the same committed believers from the age of 25 to 65, you're going to spend about 90,000 hours working, paid or unpaid, in the home or out of the home. You're going to be spending 90,000 roughly hours working during those same 40 years. So in church, 3,000 hours. Out of church, in the world, doing your work thing, in the home, out of the home, 90,000 hours, right? Okay, so you can check me on the math there. Whether you're working at home, at the office, at the job site, our time spent working is one of the primary places where we live out our faith, and there's no doubt about it, just based on time. Uh, my wife and I, we had the privilege of uh, going to the Seattle Opera, which is not, it was the first time we ever went to the Seattle Opera, so we are not Seattle Opera people. Um, <laughs> However, uh, we, we actually enjoyed ourselves. It was fantastic. And it was, it was us. It was an opera on Samson and Delilah. Would you believe that? So Seattle, downtown Seattle in, in, in McCall Hall. Uh, you know, we cruise in there and they're putting on Samson and Delilah. And let me tell you, the, the, the Seattle orchestra uh, playing this beautiful music and the, and the choir singing praises about the deliverer for Israel was quite an experience in downtown Seattle. It was quite Quite amazing. But before that, we're kind of nerdy, so we went to this lecture about the opera, because we don't really know much about opera, frankly, and so we figured we might, you know, there might be a little bit of a cheat sheet to go along with that. Um, but it was a fascinating discussion and a lecture on the sacred and the profane. And Camille Saint-Saëns, who wrote the opera Frenchman, you know, years ago, kind of during the Enlightenment period, was writing this, and it was, it was an odd thing for the bourgeoisie to be hanging out in the opera, to be getting a Bible story in the midst of this area where they usually have the, all the fun and the rival, the, the, like the, the festivity of life, ribaldry even, like all the, the things that happened within the opera were, you know, a little bit different. It was like that was their place to go and play, if you will. And to have Bible kind of thrust into that by Camille Saint-Saëns was like, oh, that's interesting and different. And so, like, what does it look like for the sacred to enter into the profane? Um, so this morning, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the difference in the divide between the secular and the sacred. Uh, so we're, we're talking this morning about the value of work. If we're going to be spending 90,000 hours of our life between the ages of 25 to 65 doing this thing we call work, whether it's inside the home, which is important, or outside the home, which is important, or working from home, which is important, or outside working at a job site, or whatever it is that you're doing. I want to tell you this morning, it's like spoiler alert, God values your work, and it's important. And I think we, uh, we have really done us ourselves a disservice having a really divide between the sacred and the secular because that's not how God set it up. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into it. God, you are here in our, in our midst and we're just grateful to celebrate that. Thank you that we can be a part of what you're doing here in Stanwood. You are at work in this community. You are at work in this church. 
And we praise you for the things that you're doing in and through the people that are sitting in these chairs. Those 3,000 hours over the next 40 years are valuable. And you're going to do awesome things in those time, in that time. Lord, we're grateful for what you have done and what you're going to do and what you're doing now. And we just, we just say, hey, today's your day. Um, we're here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think many people just naturally view um, their time in church as sacred. Would you agree? Right? Your time here is sacred, right? We, we set aside time to come and we, we um, are led in worship and this beautiful chance to sing praises before the Lord. We open up the Holy Scriptures. Hopefully you brought your own personal copy of the Holy Scriptures with you this morning. The sacred text. You know, we, we view the reading of God's word as sacred, and I would agree with all of that. That's important, and, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, but I think we have, uh, we've started to divide the sacred from the secular probably around the time of the Enlightenment. And so, like, the 17th, 18th century, you had philosophers that were, that were starting to, to think differently about the world. Like, hey, you know what, like, maybe we should, like, try to figure out a, a different way to think, right? And so, we call it the Enlightenment because, you know, it's, it enlightened us. The Western world was forever changed as a result of these philosophers that started thinking differently about, like, how we view the world. You know, they moved away from a biblical worldview and they moved into this enlightened modern worldview that has really changed the trajectory of a lot of things. How we view work, how we view schooling, how we view the church, how we view all of these things, how we view our life. And we're not doing a history study today, but I will say, I will say that, you know, you have philosophers like Kant, Immanuel Kant, that, that started thinking, like, think, think, uh, thinking through things like, all right, you have Part of the world is what I would call a phenomenon, or what he would call phenomenon, which is like all the things that you can study via science and all the, the hard things that you can look at it and you can like, okay, that's blue, and so I know it's blue, and I can prove it's blue. You say it's blue, you say it's blue, therefore it's blue, and I can say that, and I can believe that that's blue, that's phenomenon. You know, this wheel is round, phenomenon. Round works better than squares to drive a cart, phenomenon. And then he would have other things, like the, the things that you have to believe by faith, the things that you have to like take on, like the sort of the spiritual side, the religious side, the faith side of life is going to be like what he would call the Newman. You have the phenomenon that is real and verifiable by science, and then you have, you know, trust the science. Started 17th, 18th century, right? It's not a new concept. And then now here, in, you know, and over here though, we have Newman, which is like, okay, anything that has to, like you have to like just believe, in order to, like, by faith, in order to, like, trust it. We're going to call that Newman. And it was kind of the beginning of this philosophical idea that you have the, the secular over here, science, and then you have the, the sacred over here, faith, religion, things that you have to just, you, you, you can't know by looking at it. You just have to believe. You have to have faith. And so this really kind of, like, began uh, this philosophical change in thinking and worldview. Um, you know, how you view the world and what lens you view the world through matters deeply. And uh, they start, started shifting in this enlightenment period in the 17th, 18th century. You get to the 19th century, and since we're talking about the value of work, 
um, just, you know, just, just in the 19th century, you had kind of different economic theories coming out, and you had a guy named Karl Marx, and he started talking about, you know, the idea that the value of the hands and the feet and the work that you do was not, like, intrinsically valued to you, but it was, invi it was like, invaluable to, like, history. And, like, you doing the work for this government was, like, it was just, like, the work of your hands mattered deeply because of it mattered in history. And it had this greater sense of importance. And you had other people that had different ideas and, and visions of that that would be more like a capitalist mindset and say, no, no, the value of the work by your hands and your feet and the actual, like your back and, and you doing the actual work, it provides value to you because it's going to enrich you. And you, you can take personal value from work, right? And so you had kind of this differing thought process. And then to tie all of that into, you had this kind of the idea that work was secular. I've been doing this. Work is secular. And that, uh, that church work was, or church stuff is sacred. And so you have this moving away. And I think all of those theories about the value of work were kind of on the right track in the sense of, yes, we as humanity, we want to know that our work matters. But they were like misguided in, in the true nature of of how we are designed and wired. And I think God speaks a little bit differently about work than Karl Marx or Immanuel Kant or whoever it is that is talking about work. And so we certainly want to turn to the scriptures. Um, if you want to, hopefully you did bring your own personal copy of the Holy Scriptures. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at the idea of work. I think many Christians today kind of fall in line with this idea of thinking that there's this, the church world, the Bible studies, the church attendance, the Bible reading, all of that is the sacred. And then there's everything else, the work, the soccer games, the tea parties, the 4-H, the social clubs, all of the schooling, the entertaining of friends and family, all of that is going to be on the secular side. And for some, the sacred is relegated to just an escape pod trip to heaven to avoid eternal damnation and then for others it's you know the sacred is 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 an honest pursuit of just wanting to know more about God and his word and coming on Sundays to hear the preaching of his word and and finding your space in your closet and reading your word and praying and and just seeking after the Lord and um, you know, and, and then anything outside of that, when they go to work outside of the home, that's the secular. So they have the sacred, which is an honest pursuit of more and more of Jesus. And then they have kind of everything else. And that's the secular side of things. I think a lot of, a lot of us, I think myself included, uh, think of work outside of the church, work outside of the home as something that was um, difficult. How many would you say... Uh, do you that you have a difficult job? Raise your hand if you think you have a difficult job. Oh, nobody. You all have the best jobs in the world. Well, praise the Lord. Amen. I guess we're done. Uh, I find, I don't know about you, but I find my job is hard sometimes, all right? And so uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. And a lot of Christians will find that, that when they have a hard day at work, like Monday, and like, like, of course, work is cursed. Let's look at the text. And so Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. It says, To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. First of all, I can't help but notice, as I'm just seeing more and more of this as you read scripture, God is addressing the woman first. He values women deeply, and so he speaks first to the woman. But then we get to that, that piece of that, that in, in the idea of work that this, this passage kind of focuses on, which is that there's going to be difficulty getting the ground to work for us. There's going to be thorns and thistles in the ground that we are working. And so when we're trying to get fruit out of the ground, it's going to be harder than it was before. This, of course, and within context, this, of course, is after Adam and Eve. They have the fall, right? They choose to do, they, they, they pursue their own interests. They, they uh, want to be independent away from God, and they do their own thing. They do, you know, they disobey God's word. He had put up some boundaries and some fences, and they had crossed over those boundaries and fences to get after what they wanted to do their own thing. And so this is the result. This is what God would say. So from now on, the ground is going to be cursed. And it's going to be difficult. Work is going to be hard. And if, apparently you're not, but if, if some of you maybe that weren't feeling comfortable to raise your hand are like me, every once in a while you feel like your workday has some thorns and thistles that you wish weren't there. <laughs> Thank you. One of you. I, I hear you. One of you. You might work with a thorn or a thistle for all I know. I don't know. But for me, I work outside a lot. And, and when, I, when I'm outside and it's a day like today, it's, it's mostly glorious. But, you know, we do live in the Pacific Northwest. And some days aren't like this. And there's rain. And, and sometimes I'm getting wet. And sometimes the space that I'm working in is less than desirable. And I'll say that. And I'll just, so it's like I get into the space and I think, these, like, yes, this is cursed this work, there was a curse on this work. It's hard. It's not easy. And I have those days where I feel like the enemy can really speak in whispers into my ear and saying, yeah, this, this is tough, isn't it? And it can be discouraging. And you can remember like, oh yeah, yeah, the, the ground has been cursed. There are some thorns and thistles. But is this the first time that God spoke about work in his scriptures? No, it's a rhetorical question or a trick question. Of course not. No, uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 2, come back a verse or a chapter. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So work was a thing that happened before the fall. So work itself was not designed to be cursed. There was work that was happening pre-fall. And that work was good and it was valuable and it was important and it was uh, God-mandated, God-ordained, and the work was good. Without thorns and thistles. Probably, there probably wasn't even a Monday. <laughs> This is the Garden of Eden, after all, right? The work was valuable and the work was good. And so we see this before. And before, even before Adam was asked to work the ground in the garden, 
We see God at work, speaking creation into being. You can flip over to Colossians chapter 1. It's always nice to hear the turning of the pages of your Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16, he says, Therefore, oops, yep, that's chapter 2. He says, for by him, this is Paul speaking, for by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so this is God. He is a creator. He is a worker. He has been at work since the beginning of creation, speaking it into being, holding it all together, doing only that which we can't even imagine or fathom. How is it that this God could speak this world into being? We were just on this drive up from Monroe to Stanwood. We were just marveling at what a beautiful day it was. Like on I-5, there's the Olympics, there's the Cascades, there's uh, Mount Baker looking glorious. And it was so, it was awesome. And the kids were like, what mountain range is over there? I'm like, I know, we don't usually get to see the Olympics. But there's no clouds in the way. Like there they are. They're fantastic. Look at them. It's glorious. And we think about like the work that God did, like the creative like work that he just spoke that the heavens and the earth into being. And we just get excited about that. And we marvel at that. But we know that God was a worker. And before he asked Adam to work in the garden, you know what he did? He planted the garden. The scriptures say that he actually made the garden. Like he planted this garden. And so God is a worker. And then he instructs humanity to work. And it's beautiful. And I think when we divide the sacred from the secular, we miss out on the big picture that God has for his people to be involved in the, restora the restoration of his kingdom. We talked, the last time I was here, we talked about the book of Amos. We talked about bringing justice and peace as part of like bringing in the kingdom and restoring this like just a, like a glimpse of the kingdom and bringing peace wherever it is that we go. And that was what Adam was asked to do we talked about bringing peace we talked about bringing peace between ourselves and God peace with ourselves peace between us and others and peace between us and the creation and if we're separating the secular from the sacred and if we're pushing those apart in 90,000 hours of our life we're living in this place separate from that we don't consider sacred that we don't consider a part of God's work here on earth it's just my job we're missing out on being a part of what God wants to do there in just your job. Genesis 1.28, so let's flip back just another chapter. Genesis 1.28, we're kind of going backwards. It's, it's, it's how it all came together. Let's jump back at verse 27 just because it's important to say this on the regular in today's culture. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So this was our mandate from God, from humanity's mandate was to be fruitful, to multiply, to, sub, to subdue the land, to have dominion over the creation. We were to be stewards of the creation, stewards of the relationships between people, stewards of the relationship between people and creation. And when we operate with the idea that there is a divide between the sacred and the secular, and we spend our time just doing God things in the church and doing the rest of the things in the secular world, we're missing out on what God has for us in this mandate from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. I would say that the Enlightenment has done a disservice to the Western world in separating those things. And I would call us as a church to say we need to have a biblical worldview that says, no, those lines are not divided, that those lines are blurry or even just no lines at all. It is all sacred. It is all sacred. Your work is sacred. Flip back over to Colossians chapter 3. We're doing Olympics here. Thank you. Bearing with me. Again, Paul speaking to the church. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I think that's a little bit of a different worldview than sometimes I've had in my life. I worked in the church for a lot of years, 10 years as a pastor in a church, and then I got a sales job, and I thought, I just entered the secular world. And I really kind of had that as a mindset. And I needed some reformation of my mind, some transformation that the Holy Spirit needed to do, some work in my mind to see that, no, my work outside of the church is no different than my work inside the church. I may work inside, or I may work outside and get rained on and, and be in some not so desirable spaces sometimes. But my work is not all secular. Like, my work is no different than it was inside the church. My work is the same call from Genesis 1.28, which is to bring the kingdom of God and to help bring restoration to the kingdom and steward that which God has given us. And that doesn't change whether it's in the, in the house, out of the house, in the home, rearing kids, out of the house, working, you know, like, you know, in front of a computer on Zoom all day. Like, your work, it is the same. It is sacred. It is valuable. Your work matters. And it matters to God. It matters to the people that you're working with. And it matters to those that you impact. And it matters to uh, the, the worldview that we have, right? That your work certainly matters. I think our work is sacred, and we are to do it as unto the Lord. Some examples in Scripture. You don't have to turn there. I'll go ahead and just read it to you. You guys know a guy named Bezalel? If you're looking for, you know, if any, anybody, you know, with child that's uh, looking for a good name, that's a solid, solid name. <laughs> Out of Exodus chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Awesome man. Solid name. You could call him Bezzy. Bez. Filled with the Spirit of God. Like, this is what our men, we want our men to be, right? 
filled with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. His work mattered. He's a guy designed by God to know and to have the skills to make beautiful things with his hands. That's not me. Praise God that there are Bezalels out there. These things are not, not very good. How about a guy named Hiram? Also a solid name, Hiram. Out of 1 Kings chapter 7, 13 to 14, and King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Praise God for Hiram's. Another person designed by God with skills to make beautiful things out of the resources that God sets in front of us. There's probably some Hiram's and some Bezalel's in this church community here. How about Simon and Andrew? What, were, what was their occupation? Fishermen. Man's got to eat, right? We all have to eat. It's nice to have fishermen. How about Joshua? A great leader of people, leading with conviction, faith by example. How about Lydia, a businesswoman that we see in Acts chapter 16, selling expensive purple dye. I don't know how she got in the purple dye business, but it was rare and expensive. She had some serious business acumen. Quite a woman. Phoebe, businesswoman, church leader, found in Romans chapter 16. And of course, we have Paul, tent maker, church planter, preacher, writer, Renaissance man. We get jealous of him. It's frustrating. Paul's so cool. Your work is valuable. Whatever it is that you're doing, your work is valuable. You play a role in the kingdom of God. Your job matters, the work that you do matters. I've been reading a book with a group of guys um, uh, by Amy L. Sherman uh, called Kingdom Calling. And she breaks down different industries and jobs um, and that, like how you can see your calling, like how you can see your vocation as a calling, whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe you're working with bronze, maybe you're working with wood, maybe, maybe you're doing other things. But she would say that there are like six ways that work kind of like reflects the character of God. Remember we read Genesis chapter 1, 27. I thought I threw it in for free, but it's actually, it matters because we were made in the image of God. Amen? And part of being made in the image of God is that we're going to reflect his nature as a worker, as a creator, and this is who we are. And so when we operate in this place of working in the kingdom, in all of these different fields, like we have the opportunity to reflect his character. And she would identify that there's redemptive work, creative work, prov providential work, justice work, compassionate work, and that's a hard one for me to say. Let me try again. Revelatory work. Let's all say it together. Revelatory work. That's a good one. All right. So redemptive work. She would say that God's saving and reconciling actions, that humans participate in this kind of work as writers, artists, producers, songwriters, poets, and actors who incorporate redemptive elements into their stories, novels, songs, films, and performances. Others might be evangelists, pastors, and counselors, and peacemakers who reflect God in their work 
as redemptive work, okay? Creative work. God's fashioning of the physical and human world like we talked about. And God gives humans creativity like Bezalel, right? People in the arts, sculptors, actors, painters, musicians, poets. They display this as do a wide range of craftspeople like potters, weavers, and seamstresses, as well as interior designers, metal workers, carpenters, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, and urban planners. She would identify providential work that God's provision for and sustaining humans and creation. That the work of divine providence includes all that God does to maintain the universe and human life in an orderly and beneficial fashion. And so she would identify bureaucrats and public utility workers and public policymakers and shopkeepers and career counselors, shipbuilders, farmers, firemen, repairmen, printers, transport workers, IT specialists, entrepreneurs, bankers and brokers, meteorologists, research technicians, civil servants, business school professors, mechanics, engineers, building inspectors, machinists, statisticians, plumbers, welders, janitors, and all who keep the economic and political order working smoothly. Justice work, judges, lawyers, paralegals, government regulators, legal secretaries, city managers, prison wardens, guards, policy researchers, advocates, law professors, diplomats, supervisors, administrators, and law enforcement personnel participate in God's work of maintaining justice. Compassionate work, doctors, nurses, paramedics, psychologists, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, community workers, nonprofit directors, emergency medical technicians, counselors, and welfare agents reflect this aspect of God's labor and relevatory work. It's God's work to enlighten with truth. She would say that preachers, scientists, educators, journalists, scholars, and writers are all involved in this kind of work. I doubt that she hit all the jobs that are out there, right? There's a lot of jobs out there. But I think she's making the point that all of that which you do all of the work, not only is it valued by God, but it's valuable, that it's important for the kingdom of God because you are reflecting God's character in his redeeming nature, in his revelatory nature, in his compassionate nature. Like, this is what we do. We have the opportunity to reflect God's nature to the world as part of our 90,000 hours of work. It's part of what we do. And we have the opportunity to go in and join God in his redemptive work, bringing the kingdom of God, bringing it and restoring it as he fits, as he so fits. I wanted to end with uh, the book of Micah. You can flip over there. The book of Micah, it's, it's a lot like the book of Amos, describing how Israel, like we kind of went a deep dive on Amos a few weeks ago, if you want to look that up. Um, it's very similar to what's going on with Micah. Micah also is a prophet that was speaking to the people of Israel in a time period where the people of Israel were like not doing what God has called them to do. They were ignoring the poor. They were not, they were, they were selling land out from under the, the impoverished people without their uh, say-so. And they were just selling it away. And, and God was calling them to, to walk a different way. And, and I love the Minor Prophets because there's so much beautiful poetry and how, uh, how God uses language to, to use so many illustrations and beautiful images to speak to his people. In Micah 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord? Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can you feel, can you feel like, what can I do? Do you feel that? And the prophet Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, kindness, humility. In chapter 4 of Micah, uh, Micah kind of goes back and forth between like, you know, warnings and the coming judgment and then this like redemptive nature and providing hope and then more warnings and this, this hope, right? And so a piece of that hope we get in, in chapter 4, 1 through 5. And this is a beautiful word picture. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In, you know, one day, in the latter days. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall de decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And get this, this is the picture. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make him afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. That image that they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, I didn't know what that meant. So I had to, I had to look it up. And it's this proverbial picture of peace and prosperity. That the idea of having your own vine having your own fig tree is like forever just provision coming for you, that there's peace, that there's prosperity, and it's used in other portions of Scripture in, in Kings and other places in Scripture where it, where it is just describing this idea of ultimate peace and prosperity in the sense of, like, you are taken care of. And one day, church, one day, there will be, each of us will have our own vine and fig tree, that we will not have to work the ground and toil with the thorns and the thistles. Because there was a man that was sent on our behalf to put thorns and thistles on his head. And his redemptive work on the cross for us leads to one day having this beautiful picture of each of us having and living in this ultimate experience where the kingdom of God comes here as it is in heaven on earth. And each one of us will be in this place of having our own vine and fig tree, meaning that we're going to be living in ultimate peace and prosperity. And that is good news. One day Jesus will reign on earth as he does in heaven. One day his kingdom will come on earth as it does in heaven. Until then, please know that your work is valuable. Your work matters. When done to the glory of God, it reveals God's character to others. Your work, when done to the glory of God, helps to bring order to this world. Your work, when done to the glory of God, helps to restore justice, peace, and humility. 
In the original garden, back, back in Genesis, in the original garden, when humanity was given work to do, God did put some important boundaries down, didn't he? Like there was a fence. Like he, he put some parameters around what they were called to do, right? They were to be able to eat from any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was like a fence. There was a boundary. And in our work today, I just want to mention that there are boundaries or fences that are put up for our protection as well. And maybe you need to hear this part of it. We cannot serve both God and money. We are warned of allowing money to be an idol. Success can be an idol. Authority and power can be an idol. We can take what God set up for as holy and valuable, and we can corrupt it with our selfish and independent ambitions. Tim, Gell Tim Keller is known for saying, any good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing in place of God. So your work matters. It is valuable, and the work that you do is valuable, but it can be corrupted by our own sinful and selfish ambition. These 90,000 90, hours that we spend working are sacred, and they matter. Not only do they help provide for your family and your friends in need and in your community and your church and the ministry of the kingdom, but we have the chance as followers of Jesus to bring foretaste of the coming kingdom of God every day that we go to work. Have you ever gotten up in the morning because you smelled bacon cooking? I don't know if that happened to you this morning. It happened to me this morning, actually. I was in bed. I was thinking about trying to figure out what I was going to say this morning. And, and bacon filled my nose. And it's a, it is a glorious smell, right? All right, so bacon, bacon is love. And if you don't like bacon, I'm sorry. It's a terrible analogy. But I just, I just do want to say, like, have you ever, like, you've woken up to bacon, the bacon is smelling, you come downstairs, and some lovely person has, like, provided an amazing gift to the family by providing bacon on the griddle, and there it is sizzling away. And it's in nice, lovely strips, like the fat ones with the, oh, it's just, it's just, it's just, just like you like it. And then you notice on the griddle, like, there's, like, the little pieces. You know, the, like, the little pieces that kind of fall off? And, like, there they are. They, they look so just good. And so you can, like, grab those little bacon crumbs. How many of you have tried to grab a bacon crumb and, like, got, like, loving, lovingly, lovingly, uh, so, hey, 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 save that for the meal, you know? But if you're, if you're quick, you can get those little, those little bacon crumbs. And they're just cooked to perfection. They're just sizzling there, and you just pop them in here. And that's like a foretaste for the amazing bacon meal that is to come. And those little bacon little crumbles, those little foretastes of what you know is coming with that big slab of bacon, like you know, like that's just a, like a piece of what is going to come. And this silly little bacon analogy just pales in comparison to the kingdom of God coming one day and how glorious it's going to be. And yet, like, we have the opportunity to bring little bacon crumbles with us to work. And we can share God's love, his peace, his justice, his righteousness, his in humility. We can share about God's character in his revelatory nature, in his providential nature, in the way that he is a worker, he's a creator. When you make beautiful things, when you care for people, when you serve others, when you bring food to a table to provide community for others, we are bringing the kingdom of God and little bits of bacon crumbles to his people. And we have the opportunity to do that each and every day that we go to work. Your work matters, it's valuable, and it's sacred. Let's pray. Jesus, praise God that you are coming one day. Praise God that we have a part of what you're doing here on earth, even now. 
Praise God that we have 90,000 hours to work and to be people that bring the kingdom to our place of employment. Praise God for jobs and how you provide. We are so grateful for who you are in our life. Help us to honor you, whether we're sitting in these seats or whether we are working outside or inside doing the things that you've called us to do. Help us to realize that all of it is sacred. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me? I'll end our service with a benediction. So this is out of uh, Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen? Amen. Have a great day.